Hey everyone, Michael Cohen here, and welcome back to another episode of Cohen's Corner. Thank you very much for tuning in to today's show. As always, you can find episodes of this podcast available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and just about anywhere else you listen to shows. If you happen to be listening on an Apple device, we encourage you to leave us a star rating, preferably five stars if you like the show, and maybe a comment. I check out all the reviews and read through everything you guys send me, and I appreciate all the feedback I've gotten about the show so far, and I hope to hear from some more of you down the road. Support for Cohen's Corner is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in men's below-the-belt grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. They obsess over their technology developments to provide you the best tools for your grooming experience. And guys, as states around the country are starting to open back up, you're going to be getting back out there. Eventually, you're going to be going on dates again. And the worst thing you can do is be unprepared down there for a big date with somebody you really like. And that's why Manscaped has redesigned the electric trimmer. The Manscaped engineering team spent 18 months perfecting the greatest ball hair trimmer ever created, and they just released the new and improved Lawn Mower 3.0. The third generation trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce manscaping accidents, and millions of you are going to be nick-free thanks to Manscaped's advanced skin-safe technology. Accidents below the belt are now a thing of the past, and when I tell you this thing is premium, I mean premium. The battery lasts up to 90 minutes, so you can take a longer shave. There's water-resistant technology, so you can groom in the shower if that's something you like to do. And there's even an LED light. It's one of the coolest features that illuminates the grooming areas for a closer and more precise trimming. And hey, you can't forget about the charging stand. Show your mower off loud and proud, because this intelligently designed stand is a convenient charging dock powered by USB. You can get 20% off plus free shipping by using the promo code COHEN, C-O-H-E-N, at manscaped.com. That's 20% off all of their great products, including the Lawn Mower 3.0, with free shipping at manscaped.com. Use the promo code COHEN, C-O-H-E-N. Your balls will thank you. I'm really excited about today's show featuring special guest Scott Burrell. If any of you watched The Last Dance, the 10-part ESPN documentary focusing on Michael Jordan and the 1997-98 Bulls, you're probably familiar with Scott by now because he was a pretty prominent character in parts of that show. Scott was at the epicenter of all of the tormenting and prodding and poking and all of the competitiveness that Michael Jordan exhibited and demonstrated and demanded of his teammates. Scott was sort of the punching bag for Michael Jordan during that 97-98 season, and we talked a lot about what it was like to be on that team, what it was like to play with and learn from Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Dennis Rodman, Phil Jackson, and on and on with everything that that team accomplished, ultimately capping off their second three-peat with a win over the Utah Jazz. And Scott is a fascinating figure. He remains the only person to be drafted in the first round by multiple professional sports leagues. He was a first-round pick by the Charlotte Hornets in 1993, coming out of the University of Connecticut. He was the number 20 overall selection, and he was also a first-round pick by the Seattle Mariners when he was a senior in high school at Hamden High School in Connecticut. He did not end up signing with the Mariners, but was drafted again a year later in the fifth round, this time by the Toronto Blue Jays. They did agree to a deal, so he was simultaneously playing Division I basketball at UConn while he was pitching over the summer in the minor leagues. Then he decided to part ways with baseball, go into the NBA, and five years into his career, he finds himself as a supporting role player in the end of the Chicago Bulls era with Michael Jordan, Scotty, Phil, and all those guys. So this was a fascinating conversation, talking about Chicago, talking about UConn, talking about what it was like to be a professional baseball player while you're also trying to become a professional basketball player. And then we talked a little bit about his transition into coaching. So hopefully you guys enjoy the show. It was a lot of fun. And without further ado, here is a conversation with Scott Burrell. Well, Scott, thank you very much for taking some time to talk with me. I really appreciate you carving out a section of your day. I know as coaches, the work never stops. You're still working with your players. You're still recruiting and trying to get ready for what we hope is a full season later this year. But I got to ask you, how much different and and how crazy and, and how much did things change for you after the last dance when some of your moments with Michael kind of went viral? Uh, you know what? It, it, it changed dramatically. Um, can you hear me? I can hear you. Yep. I'm sorry. It, it changed dramatically. It's, but it, but it's all in fun. I, I love how how much energy the the documentary brought back, uh, the great memories it brought back, the passion you saw in MJ. 
it brought back so much fun and and, uh, and the great times of you know when I was 22 years ago. At the time when they were filming during that season, nobody knew when or if that footage was ever going to come out. So over the last 22 years, did a part of you ever think, you know, maybe this never even sees the light of day? No, we we knew it was going to come out eventually. We just didn't know when. Um, like I had somehow, some way, I got foot part of the footages, the footage that I was in, and um, so I knew it was going to come out. But it was perfect timing. That's the amazing thing. It was the perfect timing that it did come out. Um, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, people needed something new. It's funny that it's old sports, but it was new for everyone else to see. So it was it was great to watch at that time. What was it like to see some of the footage so many years later when you got a little preview of what your part would be? Uh, it was it was great. I mean, I, I, fun. I just told my parents the part about the plane. Sure. <laughs> so yeah, be be prepared for that. So they they thought it was funny. They laughed. They watched it. They laughed. But uh, I just you know it just it was a time that like where you're on other teams in the NBA, but then you go to the Bulls, it's a different level. And getting filmed every day, playing against every team's best shot, it was it was a time like no like no other. Was it ever um was it ever awkward or inconvenient to have the camera crews as, around you guys as often as they were? No. Because you once after you knew they were there a week and then you knew they were gonna be there all year, that was secondary. You never even thought of them, you never even saw them, you never even worried about them. You just worried about you doing your job and 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 preparing yourself to to win and be and and get better. I think that the the way it was portrayed and some of the things that Michael said and did in relation to to you and trying to rile you up or bring the best out of you. I think a lot of times when we see footage or hear things like that, we think, okay, you know, this is what it's like to be a rookie in the league. But you were not a rookie in the league. You'd been in the league since '93. You'd played mm-hmm. on teams with some really good players, Alonzo Mourning, Larry Johnson, when you were in Charlotte. And so, uh-huh. I, what kind of goes through your head in that that September day in '97 when you find out? You're going to be traded from Golden State to Chicago, and I think it was maybe only five weeks before the season started. Yeah, I, I was. First of all, I was nervous. You know, you go from one of the worst teams that, from Golden State to the best team, and a team that's won five out five out of seven championships and, and two in a row. So you're worried about how am I going to fit in? Um, am I prepared for this? Uh, what makes them great? Am I going? Am I going to? Do the right things to help the team. Do I don't hurt Michael? There's so many, I learned the office. So many things I had to learn to fit in, and, and so I love the trade, but it comes with a lot of you know stresses, pressure, and 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 challenges to to do your job. Did you have any relationship with anybody on the Bulls prior to being there? You guys crossed paths so many times in the NBA, but that doesn't necessarily mean any friendships or anything had formed. Did you know anybody on the team, or was it completely new to you? Completely new. I didn't know anyone on the team. The only person I did know is who I got traded for, Dickie Simpkins. So, right. so yeah. So um, that's the only person I knew. And uh, so I'm going to a team that's been together. And and one of the first days, Michael said, "There's no free rides here. You're going to put in. You're going to work every day. You're going to be part of this team. You're going to be. Um, you're going to do your job at the best of your ability. And uh, and now uh, that's what he he wants to get out of everyone every day in practice. Prior to being around MJ, who was one of the most demanding teammates you had ever been around? So, like, in other words, who was the closest you had experienced to Michael? Not that there's anybody, you know, remotely in that category sometimes, but was there anybody that, that you know, challenged you in, in any kind of way that was even somewhat comparable to what Michael did? No. There's no one. I can't even give you an example or someone that's close or anyone that's comparable to Michael. Um, there's no one like that. There's no one that challenged you every day to the best to, to be the best your ability. I think that's why you're so comfortable playing on other teams. and But that's why so many other teams are just so mediocre compared to playing in Chicago and playing with the Bulls. And I'm not saying there's not they're not great players on other teams, but no one really knows how to win championships unless you've done it. And the obviously the Bulls have done it, and they had a great leader, great coaching staff. They, their, their team was bought into winning. There was no animosity towards each other. I mean, that might be the first team that had no arguments, and it was just everyone enjoyed playing with each other. Did you, um, you know, obviously they were the two-time defending champions and they had already had the earlier three-peat. Did you, I mean, I don't want to say foregone conclusion, but did you think it was pretty likely that you were going to win a ring barring some kind of injury from the day you got there? You, Not at all, especially when we started off like eight and six or eight and seven at one time. So you you really didn't think, and plus Scotty was hurt the whole first 30 games. Dennis didn't play the first couple of few games, whatever. So you, you didn't. You really didn't. I didn't, maybe they did. I really didn't think it was going to happen. But until you see it, the thing start clicking and clicking, and everybody getting healthier and better, people doing more out there on the court, um, then you see 
you know, the chains start coming. You see the records start we're running running off three wins, four wins, five win, wins in a row. Then you see the momentum start building. So then you see the real championship Bulls team come out. I was reading an interview that you did with, with somebody else in the wake of the last dance, and I think the, the question that was posed to you was, did anybody sit down with you and talk to you about your role? And you cut them off, and you said, no, 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 no. Let's be clear about this. When you're coming into a team that has three future Hall of Famers, you know what your role is. It's play defense, it's rebound, and it's make shots when you're open. And so, you know, how long did it take you to adjust to that? Because there were times in, in Charlotte when you were counted on to score a little bit more, and obviously at UConn you were a scorer as well. Yeah, um, I mean, right away. Uh, you know, like I said, you know your role. People buy in. That's what makes that team so great. Everyone bought into their role, didn't fight that, but you better do your role to the best of your ability. When it's because it's not going to be your night every night because maybe limited minutes or you're not limited shots, but it can be on defense to make a play. It can be on uh, uh, make a jump shot, make a uh, cause a, a, a turnover or something. Um, but you've got to be ready to do something every night. And like I said, it could be someone's night every other night, but just be prepared. Did you feel like that was an environment where the role players were still appreciated? Obviously, Dennis had a role that was pretty unique and prominent because he was such a good defender and rebounder, and so that's been highlighted a lot. But, you know, some of the guys that had smaller parts and smaller roles, did you guys still feel appreciated in that environment? Yes, I think. And I think Michael, as much as he pushed us, I think he knew how much he needed us to be great. So uh, you felt like you were more important than maybe on other teams if you were just a role player. Um, and you know what? If he didn't talk to you, you might got, might have got worried. So I think people love the challenge of Michael pushing him every day. I mean, it, it might have got tiresome for some people, but I haven't had it in a long time since college, really, when Coach Cowan used to push us to be uh, to motivate us. Um, so I, I I loved it. I, I never thought anything it was. I never thought it was belittling or bullying. I thought it was someone who who liked me, who who saw something more than maybe I saw in myself, but that, that wanted me me to be prepared for. Uh, to help the team. Did you ever get the sense that he would have acted differently if he knew the cameras were not on for that entire season? No, not at all. I think I, I really don't know because I, I didn't know him at the time until I played with him. But I, I don't think he would act any different. No, I think he was a beast every day. Like I heard he fought Steve Kerr the year before. Um, Steve Kerr is one of the quietest, nicest guys. But so I think he would challenge anyone each and every day. Uh, um, to see if they're, they're they're ready to that they're getting better. Were there guys on that team that you gravitated toward when it came to social stuff or or friends? We had great camaraderie and we all appreciated each other and we all needed each other. Um, and and I think that we loved, we obviously really cared about each other. So I think that's that's what I loved about it. like every other team. You had thank you. Thank you. I, I think every other team had arguments and and disagreements and. There was petty issues on a lot of the other teams, but this team had one goal, and that was to win. Do your best and just win. So I'm interested to hear you describe it that way because there was obviously a portion of the documentary that between, you know, Scotty's contract issues and some of the tension between, um, you know, Michael and and the front office, and and obviously Dennis had his times where he would go on hiatus a little bit. It certainly seemed like there it wasn't a very smooth ship, but you're describing it maybe as a situation where things maybe did run a little more smoothly. So is it fair to say that perhaps what you guys were experiencing and feeling in real life was was maybe different than how the documentary portrayed it? Well, I don't think it was chaotic. I think it was chaotic for people who thought how things should be run. Um, but like, if you think about today, when guys take days off, that's no different than what Dennis did. Um, so I, I think, but when Dennis came back, he was giving you his 25 rebounds, his 20 rebounds, his defensive stops, um, his intensity, his, his energy. So he, we never, he might've missed practice every now and then, but, and he missed a couple of games, but he gave it to you every time he stepped on the court. And I'm not sure that passion and that fire was totally different than than, uh, than what people can, can see or, or knew about. Yeah, you know, that was one of the things. I remember a few years ago, you know, when I was reading an article about Dennis, uh, I think it was maybe a Sports Illustrated story or, or an ESPN story. I went up and I looked at his statistics. And, you know, I don't think there's really ever been another player quite like him in the NBA. You know, obviously personality plays into that too. But the way he could defend and the way he rebounded was just incredible and so when you think about the way he played and influenced the game without really scoring how unique was his ability 
Oh, he was unbelievable. He watched so much film. He because he had a great IQ for the game. Number one, he watched film. You know how to defend his players. He knew what they were going to do at the offensive end. Uh, he knew how how to get around him on the rebounding uh, end of, of, of the court. Um, and just uh, his intensity and his energy and his his conditioning was unbelievable. People don't understand how much he worked out and worked worked on his conditioning. And he outlasted so many other guys on the court during the game. Which is amazing, too, because, you know, you saw the footage of him partying and everything in Las Vegas. And, you know, obviously that's not necessarily great for the, the cardiovascular system. But, you know, for him to be able to come back and, and do what he did was was amazing. Um, was he uh, was he somebody that, you know, you could kind of uh, talk to and, and be friendly with? Or was he sort of a, a lone wolf that kind of did his own thing? <laughs> definitely, definitely a lone wolf. Dennis didn't talk much. He came in, did his job, did his lift weights, did his cardio, practiced hard, and uh, he was out of there. But he wasn't—he he didn't say many words, and uh, that's the best part about it. He was a quiet guy, but came in, did his job, and just—you know—he was like the wind, just blew out of blew out of the arena or practice. And after that, you saw him wait till the next day. That's so interesting. Uh, I I couldn't believe some of the stories that you know were were in the documentary with Michael talking about you know basically going into his hotel room and and pulling him you know back to to reality after he had been spending time you know out of the state and then you know with Carmen and everybody else who was in his life and um, you know to to be able to to balance it the way he did was was just tremendous. Were were you ever privy to any of uh, any of his uh, social preferences? Were you ever out on the scene with him or anything like that in Chicago? I might have went out with Dennis once or twice, and I, after that, I realized I couldn't hang with the hang with the big dog, so I, I didn't I didn't make any more trips with him. But I, I'll tell you, the funniest thing about that story is I never knew he went to Vegas. I, I don't, and I don't know if a lot of guys knew he went to Vegas because they were so worried about doing their jobs and focused on what they had to do. They because Dennis would miss every now and then a practice or a game, miss a practice. So I don't think guys knew he missed it, um, um, went to Vegas. Well, I didn't, I should say that. And I think it was awesome watching it and just learning he went to Vegas for a little vacation. Well, that's actually a really <laughs> interesting question. Was there anything else in the documentary about your season in particular that you didn't necessarily know was going on behind the scenes? Uh, that's probably the only one. That's probably the only one. I, I, I remember I remember the arguments and of uh, the uh, between Phil – I'm not Phil, between um, – Kraus and uh, and, and Pip and those guys, but I think that's the only thing that was the only thing I didn't know during that documentary. What was your impression of of Phil Jackson? You had had the opportunity in college to play for Jim Calhoun, who's you know went on to become one of the the best coaches in in college basketball history, and then Phil Jackson, you know, regarded by many as one of the best coaches in in NBA history. What did you think of him and and his system and his demeanor and everything about him? Well, I love Phil. I love Phil. I love Phil's system. I loved the way he treated us. I loved the the, um, the professionalism he brought. Uh, he let people be themselves. Uh, he never had to yell because he had Michael to be the the great leader on the court. So he was able to teach, um, mold us, uh, use, uh, learn our personalities, and treat everyone with respect. Um, and, and it just it was a pleasure to play for him. Uh, um, I wish I had more time to get to know Phil and get into his head a little bit more. You know, me being a coach, but there's nothing that I, I enjoyed every minute playing for Phil. Um, he let us be be gentlemen, let us be men, and and we've all played hard for him because because uh, he respected that. When when you go into an environment where a guy has proven himself the way that Phil did with you know five rings by that point, and then obviously would go on to win more with Los Angeles. Is that the type of situation where, as pros who are trying to win a championship as badly as you guys are every year, when you walk into a room with a guy with that pedigree, there's instant buy-in right away, whether you're a new guy or a guy that has been on the team for a few years? 100% true. There's instant buy-in, plus Phil coached a lot of stars that were so self-motivated and wanted to win and wanted to be great, so it made it easier for everyone to buy into what. If your leaders are self-motivated and buying into what the coach is selling, and you have a great coach everyone loves it, it the, the the blueprints there to be great just buy in and follow it i think one of the parts of the documentary that was most interesting to me was was when they talked about you know phil's unique ability to manage not only stars but just the 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 variety of personalities that were part of that team and not just the team the organization as well with everything that was going on so you know as you've gotten older and been able to reflect on things and gotten into coaching yourself what was it about his player management or person management that made him such an effective coach in that side of things 
he respected everyone and everyone respected him. Um, like I tell everybody this situation, we went to Orlando and obviously it's beautiful in Orlando. We had a day off before we played the magic and he gave us a day off, but everyone knew with, with that day off, we had to come back ready. The next day I shoot around, we had to be ready for practice and then be prepared for the game. And everyone knew we had to give it 110%. We, well, we did, everyone probably did a little cardio on their own, but mentally we knew we had to go in that game and give it more than we usually do because for Phil, for giving us a day off and we appreciated it. We weren't, we didn't think we deserved it or, or he owed us a day off, but we appreciated it and we had to win that game for him. And that's what guys do for coaches that they love and enjoy playing for. You know, when he went on to Los Angeles and then obviously he had some time in New York as well toward the end, people were starting to say, well, you know, the triangle offense, maybe it doesn't work anymore in the modern NBA. Maybe there's too much about, you know, uh, pace and space now that it doesn't quite fit. You know, that argument is not something that I'm qualified to, to analyze, but I'm curious, why did the triangle offense work so well in the 90s? And if you had to give the simplest explanation to people who aren't X's and O's junkies, how do you explain what his, his principles really were about well it's it's simple i, I think you got number one you got to buy into it number one, you got to have the, the right players to run that offense um if you look at our team in chicago we are we had two really great scorers or three into three and tony kukoc but after that we're all role players and if you have a whole bunch of superstars and they all need the ball and they all need the ball to dribble and make a shot and create for themselves the triangle won't work but uh so that's one reason why it struggled in, in maybe new york or something but um I think the offense is something that once you're, everybody's on the same page and everybody knows the offense together, it, it's all predicated on a pass or a cut, and it's just it's poetry. Uh, it's it's and, and and you know where to get your best player the ball. You don't have to fight for like if we want to get Michael the ball on the right block, we knew just be patient. Run the start the offense on the right on the, on the right side, uh, on the left side. The ball will be shifted from one side of the court to the other. Michael gets on the block, scores where he likes to score. We knew how to be patient, and run it. What was um, – were there any moments from that season? You know, obviously the, the famous ones are, of course, the, the playoffs and, and the shots that Michael made and things like that. But was there anything that you can remember from practice or during the season where it just kind of stuck with you, maybe a moment or something that, that he did that just kind of affirmed all of the greatness that everybody recognized in him? Uh, just being a leader out on the court every day, being lifting weights every morning, going to practice like it was, you know, a game every day, uh, I, I would say – Winning every, trying to win every sprint, um, just being motivated to be great and to finish practice like it was a game, uh, or to come into practice like it was a game. Um, it doesn't that doesn't happen every day, and you don't you very find you find very few people. The best player is the best, the hardest worker, the best leader, the most vocal, uh, the most determined, the most passionate. You don't find that often. You know, he talked about doing the things that he did to try and bring up the level of players he was with because he would always say that there would be some moment where he would need you guys to, to step up and he wanted to make sure that, you know, you had the, the requisite toughness or the requisite mindset, commitment, et cetera, et cetera. So when, when you guys as role players, and I'll use you as an example, when you have a game like you did against New Jersey where you have 23 points in the playoffs, or there was another game, you know, partway through the year where you had 24, when, when you are able to sort of bust out a little bit and show what you can do and take advantage of that opportunity does was it almost like a, a little bit of extra you know yes you know this is this is proving you know everything that that they wanted me to do is is real I can do this did it feel like extra good when you had those standout moments no to be honest it, it really didn't feel I mean it felt the same like I said everybody's gonna have their night Steve Kerr Judd Bushler Bill Winnington obviously the stars are gonna have theirs Michael Scotty and Dennis are gonna have and Tony but you needed someone else to step up every other night and and you just felt like you did your job you prepared to do your job i mean like i said our roles on other teams are different i was more of a scorer in charlotte um and but when you go to chicago you don't need to do that you need to do other things but some games you're called upon to score and i was happy to help and then do my job and you just prepared to do that and you don't feel any extra specialness you don't feel any it doesn't feel anything or like extra special about it you just did what your your job was called to do what, what did you feel like going into the playoffs? When, when I was doing my research to get ready to chat with you tonight, I was looking back through you know, your career, and there was a year in Charlotte, obviously, where they played Chicago in the playoffs, but you were hurt. So correct me if I'm wrong, but was this your first playoff experience during that season? I think my career, that might have been my first playoff experience in my career. Because I think two years in Charlotte, 
I'm, I tore my Achilles and I dislocated my shoulder. Right. So I think I think my two times I could have been in the playoffs. I think I was hurt for Charlotte. So yeah, I mean that's that's why I was so many was many reasons why that was so nerve wracking for me. And I'm glad you brought that up because I forgot that was really my first playoff experience, to be honest. And uh, you know it's it's and when you're playing for the Bulls, it's the last dance. You're playing for a team that you know is going to be uh, um, imploded or explode, whatever you want to call it, disbanded. It's it's more nerve wracking. And, and more intense and, and and more scrutinized in every play, every pass, every defensive stop, every offensive uh, um, situation. It's so magnified that you you want to be be perfect. And it's, and today's basketball is different because it's so much up and down and so many open threes, so many threes and stuff like that. But back then, every play was magnified, and it was I was it was more nerve wracking for me because they've been there five out of seven or two in a row, and for me, it's my first time. So they had more composure, and I, that's why I wish I was there again and we had a chance to be there. I would have been a better player, a more relaxed player, a more composed player, and a player that could did a little more. How did you handle the stress? You know, in the era now where there's less and less of a, a stigma, and, and necessarily so regarding mental health, there's teams that have, um, you know, team psychologists and and mental health experts that talk to players so that they they don't have to feel overwhelmed by pressure or stress or even you know work life balance and everything. You know, back then, did did you guys have any of that, or or was it kind of up to each individual player to manage whatever stress they had? Well, one, one thing great about Phil, too, he brought a psychologist in once every month, I think. And we sat and talked and meditated and, and just maybe gathered our thoughts to slow things down and, and put us in the moment, I would say. I think that definitely helped us as a team, um, um, bonding like that and being able to relax your mind. But also, I think it just I, – I think MJ pushing me. Like, for games were easy compared to practice. Easier, I should say. Because you didn't have MJ pushing you or uh, him in your ear every play, so it, it made it easier that you can go on the court and just play against the other team, which you're used to playing against Ron Harper, Scottie Pippen, Michael Jordan, uh, Tony Kukoc, Dennis Rodman, or uh, Luke Longley. That's a tough six guys to play against every day against the first unit. So you played against them every day. You you prepare yourself for battles in uh, for the game. That's that's really interesting, and I, I guess that's also where you benefit from what you said earlier, which is that Phil did not have to yell during games or even during practice very much, because I could see a scenario where, you know, if if that person driving you is the coach, and the coach is the one that's on you all the time in practice, and then that coach is still on you all the time during games, that's when maybe things start to creep in, or you start to play a little more tight, and, and you're not as relaxed, but like you mm-hmm. said, with Michael not really having to do that during the games, it does it does free you up a little bit and so i could see why that would be really beneficial oh definitely but phil like it was a perfect situation for both people for phil and michael phil's a great coach great teacher great motivator great coach of personalities michael the best player to ever play competitive uh, could talk to phil uh bouncing things off each other they were great for each other and um and he had great players like scotty and dennis around him but it was just and the dynamics of everything just worked out perfect for that team. So one of my favorite tweets that I saw from people following along with the documentary, and uh, and you, know, <laughs> you were obviously on Twitter and saw a lot of those, but me being from <laughs> Connecticut and growing up there and having both my parents go to UConn, I was very familiar with your career long before this. I knew how good of a baseball player you were. And so my favorite tweet that I saw was during the episode <laughs> where it focused on Michael's baseball career. And somebody <laughs> yeah. tweeted that, you know, if push come, came to shove, you could have struck Michael out on three pitches, whether he knew it or not. And I thought that that was pretty funny because you were obviously a terrific pitcher in your day, drafted twice. Did you ever, you know, did you ever go back at him about your baseball ability or anything like that? I, I stayed, I kept it simple. Never go back to the guy who's the best. Because you know what? So when you talk about baseball for two seconds, he would go back to basketball, and then the conversation would end real quickly. So, no, I never talked about baseball. So, no, I never talked about baseball with Michael. I just kept it strictly the business, uh, uh, basketball, and our business at hand. Nothing else. <laughs> was the baseball versus basketball choice a difficult one for you when you were 18, 19, up to the end of college? It, it wasn't back then. I mean, looking back at it, uh, I don't know if it was the right one, but it wasn't difficult because – I loved competing against uh, the best players each and every day. And and that's what basketball did for us, um, did for me, I should say. So I, I enjoyed that. And I loved the competition. I loved 
Um, I, I love being against playing against the best players in the world each and every day. That's why that's why I stuck. I played basketball over baseball. So when you were, you know, this this unbelievable high school athlete at, at Hamden High School in Connecticut, and you are an all-state quarterback and terrific in baseball, terrific in basketball, you're being recruited, I, I assume you were probably recruited at least lightly in football as well, and then definitely baseball and basketball. What was it mm-hmm. like at the time to be, um, you know, sort of the bell of the ball and being pulled in all different directions, having to make important decisions when you're basically still a teenager? Uh, you know what? You, back then, you really never thought about it. You just did what you had to do, and each time, of, uh, each season, it was, it was a time to play that sport. And I just loved competing. And I, but what made it what made it fun for fun for me is I loved gaining or playing a sport that everyone else played all year round. And I knew I wasn't as good as everyone, but I loved the challenge of competing against guys who've done their uh, worked on the game all year or practiced all year. Uh, it was fun to try to stop those guys. Um, skill wise and, and and iq wise it's a challenge of competing so was there ever a day when when jim calhoun came and, and sat in your family living room and recruited you to yukon oh yeah oh yeah and uh the day he came my parents messed up the schedule because rhode island was there the same day so they had to wait a little bit before before they came in so yeah they definitely came in and sat down to talk to us I'm yep. sure I'm sure Jim was really ecstatic to wait behind another school to come in and talk to you. <laughs> yeah. He, well, you know what? He played it off really well that night. But I'm sure he I'm sure when he got in the car with his other with the other guys with Howie Dickman and Dave Lato, um, the rest of the staff, he was a little ticked off, but it worked out in his favor. It worked out in both of our favor. You know, now, 30 years later, UConn is, is of course, you know, sort of like a a blue chip program with four national titles in a span of 20 years from 99 to, you know, the present. And and so I'm curious, back then when when Jim Calhoun was, I think, maybe going into his fourth season in stores Mm -hmm. and still trying to build that program, what was the pitch back then to try and get good players to go to a school that didn't have a huge history of basketball success at that point? I don't think people thought about success. I think they thought about playing in the Big East and keeping the best players at home. One thing he sold to me, tried to sell to me, was keep the best players at home. Um, that's the way we're going to build championships. That's where we're going to be great. And uh, Chris Smith stayed, Steve Peichel stayed, and uh, I stayed. And I think it, it started building that uh, um, that energy of keeping uh, uh, and the fan base too. When you have your best players in the state playing, your fan base grows like that. And um, we, we, that's what happened. I followed those other two guys, and we got a chance to win the Big East my freshman year, and uh, it was I think it grew from there. So when he was recruiting you your senior year, it was that, that spring or early summer of your senior year of 1989, right around the time, maybe a couple weeks before you would have graduated high school when you get drafted in the first round by the Seattle Mariners. You know, my, First of all, did, did you know that you were going to get drafted that year? And, and second of all, what's it like to be a teenager who probably was in school or maybe it was a weekend, but you were in high school at the time and, and all of a sudden yeah. the team wants you to be its first round pick in, in Major League Baseball? Um, it was it was something you look forward to. I mean, you have scouts at every game in baseball in high school, so you, you know what's coming. You just don't know where it's, where you're gonna go. And to hear your name called in the first round, it's or to get that phone that phone call and say you're drafted in the first round, it, it's a, an amazing thing. Uh, Seattle, um, you know, we just didn't, things didn't work out with Seattle, and the next year Toronto drafted me, and uh, we negotiated a good 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 deal for both of us, and I was able to go to college and play baseball with Toronto. What was it like to kind of do that balance between baseball and basketball? I was reading an article in the the Stanford Advocate from, you know, I think it was 1990 or 91, where they talked Mm -hmm. about how you would go play during the summer in between, you know, the spring and fall semesters. And there was one semester where you got back from from Ontario, you know, pitching as part of the the Blue Jays organization the night before the semester started. So both mentally and physically, what was that challenge like playing both sports at a high level? I just don't think people know. I think I loved it. It was competitive. It's fun, but I never got to excel in one sport, and I, I don't regret it one bit. But um, I never got to maximize my talent in, each, in, the, in any of the sports I played. But you know that's what happens. You choose when you choose to play multiple sports, and uh, I I would never change anything in, anything about that in my life. So if you had to sort of think about the three sports, baseball, basketball, football, how would you rank them in terms of which ones you liked best and then which ones you were actually the most skilled at? The most skilled at. All right, we'll go that way first. I would say baseball, football, basketball. Really? 
yeah. I, then the ones I love most, I would go basketball, baseball, football. It's, it's, no, I, I no, don't know. no, no, no. I'll, I'll say this. Love first, I'll go baseball, basketball, then football. It's amazing to me to think that uh, what you would describe as your third best sport still resulted in you being a first-round draft pick and winning an NBA title. It's just it's mm. crazy to me. And so when I was going back and reading these quotes from Calhoun saying he'd never coached an athlete like you, and you know, then you see a stat that says even to this day you're the only person in professional sports history to be drafted in the first round in multiple sports. I mean, you know, you certainly don't come across as a guy like having any kind of an ego, but did, did any of it register to you on sort of a, a bigger level, just just how rare your, your talents were at that time? I, I don't, no, I don't look at it that way. I just look at it as I was, I was gifted. Um, uh, my parents did a great job molding me, I think. And I just love competing. That's, that's what made me, I think, better than my skill and the talent level was. I love competing and uh, challenge. I love the challenges of that. I face every time I step on the field or the court, and uh, that, that was I loved having fun. I loved having fun playing against the best. I think maybe the two biggest firsts that people probably ask you about were obviously the first time you walked into practice with the Bulls, and then the second one would be the first time you know you started practicing with with UConn and Jim Calhoun. So, what was it like to walk into the gym? I guess it probably would have been in the old field house at UConn for the first time, and and work with Jim Calhoun and, and Dave Lato and Dickerman and those guys. What was that environment like, jumping from high school to college? Well, you know, it's funny. I, I knew I can compete with those guys because they weren't the best players at that time. So I knew I was pretty athletic and pretty uh, and pretty uh, pretty good player in, when I was in college. So I wasn't nervous about that. I was just nervous about finishing practice because they were hard. <laughs> they were really hard at practice. But uh, and we would start in Geyer, and we first thing you would say was like run twenty laps around Geyer when it was like hundred degrees. But I loved I loved that. But once you go to first practice in Chicago. You're playing against the best player to ever play basketball, True. and probably one of the best and one of the best teams to ever play, be put together um, as a team in the NBA. So it's totally different things, and you know you're at the bottom of the totem pole when you're a new player there. And in college, there's really no totem pole. You get you ever, it's just whoever's going to help you win games. You're on the court, but basketball and NBA, it's you know to people's talent level. And uh, I knew I wasn't one of the best on that team, so it's totally different. But you were one of the best almost right away uh, at UConn, and that that 89-90 season for anybody who's followed the Connecticut program, that year gets a lot of credit as being sort of the one that launched the program, even though it wouldn't be for you know another eight or nine years till they made their first Final Four in 99 when they also won their first title. But you guys came within a whisper of the Final Four that season, and that was actually the first time Jim Calhoun had made the NCAA tournament at UConn. As I mentioned, it was his fourth season there. Why? Why did that group come together in 89-90 to go from a program that hadn't made the NCAA tournament under Jim Calhoun to 31-6 co-Big East regular season champions, Big East tournament champions, a number one seed, and all the way to the Elite Eight? Why was that group so special? We loved playing with each other. We competed for each other. We competed for coach. We competed, we competed for the state. Um, and, and we played great defense. We, don't have, we didn't have any stars on that team. Um, everybody just competed their butts off played hard. I think we had the fear of getting beat because we weren't that talented, but we just played extremely hard and bought into what coach was selling. And and, and we were a team that couldn't, were, could not be denied that year. But obviously, it came to an end against Duke, but we were relentless on defense. Was that also the year that Gamble Pavilion opened? It was. It was. And <laughs> we opened up against St. John's. I remember we tried to practice in there a couple of days, a couple of weeks or before that game, and the floor wasn't really done yet. It was like, it was like an ice skating rink. But then they fixed it up, and it was that game against St. John's was unbelievable. The energy in that building, the building was rocking. It was just so much fun playing against St. John's that night. Yeah, I went back and, and looked at you know some of the attendance figures from that season, and the field house held about 4,000 people, and then you played some of the mm -hmm. games in Hartford at the Civic Center, which held about 15,000, 16,000, and then Gamble Pavilion, where the team still splits its games, holds about 10,000. So to have all of the students right on campus and everything for the first time, did it feel like that building was a legitimate source of, of home court advantage for you guys? Oh, definitely, definitely. I mean, playing in the field house is nice, but... To have a new building on campus and the energy those kids brought, it was electric. And uh, that was my first game back. I had knee surgery that year. So it was even special for me because I came off the bench and I had so much energy. I had fun. And uh, and to get a, a win in your home in the new building on a, an opening night, 
it was awesome. You know, one of the things that everybody misses about the old Big East is is the Big East tournament. And you guys, you know, went to New York that year, won the tournament, and and you know secured a number one seed in the NCAA tournament. How would you describe what the Big East tournament was like at that time with you know the the Dikembe Mutombo's and with you know the talent that all these schools, St. John's, Georgetown, Villanova, when it was in the absolute prime. How how vicious was that league every night? A beast. It was a beast. I mean, there wasn't a night you didn't have a dogfight. No matter who it was, Villanova, St. John's, Providence, it was going to be a dogfight. Because, um, number one, we were trying to earn respect. And number two, we started earning it early in the season, and nobody wanted to give us give it to us. But we had to take it and every night. It was so much fun. Every atmosphere, every arena, big Mondays, it was, uh, oh, it was unbelievable. So much fun. You know, that was a year you mentioned where there wasn't a lot of respect given. In fact, you guys actually lost your first game of the year at Texas A&M. But by the time mm-hmm. you get all the way toward the end of the regular season, you've you know secured a spot in the top 10, as I mentioned. And so I guess, you know, what was it about, um, you know, the, the way you developed over the course of the year that, you know, from the beginning of the season when maybe there were still some things to be worked out to the time you get to the postseason in the Big East tournament, you guys had, you know, basically, you know, had a 10-game winning streak in there. At one point mm-hmm. going into the Big East tournament, you win, let me see here, it looks like you win 15 out of 17 going into the Big East tournament. So at yep. its best, what was that team so good at? Locking people up. Um, we knew that was our bread and butter. Our our two two one defense was uh, unbelievable. I mean, Nadav Hennefeld led the country in steals. I think I was up there, whatever uh, in steals. Chris Smith was a great defender. Tate George was a long point guard. Rod Sellers was uh, long in the back line. I think we all were on a great. We all had an IQ and we all played well with each other. So what was the thought then going into the NCAA tournament? Again, this team that under Calhoun had not been there yet in in his four years at UConn and a team that was certainly not viewed as a number one seed going into the season. You get to play your first two games at the Hartford Civic Center because that's where the, the first two rounds of the East Regional were located. So you're playing in your home building. You play Boston University and you win. You play University of California and you win. Both games, 20-point wins essentially, very comfortable. Um, I mean, at that point, how good were you guys feeling? Feeling good, but, you know, th- those two games weren't they weren't that easy. I think we started off against BU we struggled a little bit and uh but you know what usually after we you wear we wore teams down like we did all all year and we came out on top we felt great but uh, obviously we were lucky to win the next round against clemson and obviously the next round after that duke uh hurt us with a, a buzzer shot yeah i don't know how you just glossed over the clemson game like that considering you're, <laughs> you're one half of maybe the mo- one of the most famous highlights in in school history you know that was a game where with one second left, uh, you guys are down 70 to 69 against a team that was really, really good. And Clemson had, you know, the twin towers with Dale Davis and, and Eldon Campbell and two guys that mm-hmm. were going to be first round picks, both 6'11. And so you have the ball on the opposite baseline from where your basket is. You, mm-hmm. as the, the All-State quarterback in high school, get the assignment from, from Jim Calhoun to throw the pass. And for those who haven't seen it, of the 94 feet, 6 inches on a basketball court, Scott throws it about... 88, 89, maybe 90 to Tate George, who's <laughs> kind of in between the edge of the paint and the three-point line, if you can picture kind of that that short corner area. And he catches it and fades and hits a, a turnaround jumper over two Clemson defenders. So the the pass goes 90 feet. The shot swishes at the buzzer with one second on the clock when, when the ball is thrown. So you know, first of all, did you know where you were supposed to go on that play? Was Tate George option one? And second of all, had you even practiced that before that season? Well, we practiced something like, like that, but you don't know. You usually don't have a 6'10", a 6'11 guy in front of you. And uh, Eldon Campbell cut off the left side of the court. So anything on the left side of the court was out of play. I couldn't see anything over there because he was guarding uh, the mid court, uh, halfway down the line to the left side of the court. So Everything I saw was on the right side. I saw I saw Smitty at half court, and I saw Tate closer to the basket. And Tate did a great job of holding off Sean Tyson. So I just knew if I threw a a, a corner pattern like um like uh, <laughs> Tom like Tom Brady, <laughs> I well Tom Brady wasn't around back then, but somewhat like Tom Brady now. Uh, Tate it was on, it was in Tate's hands after that, and uh, it was up to Tate to finish the job. 
And so he catches the ball, turns around, hits the shot. Everybody goes crazy. What, what mm. was what was going through your mind at that time? I mean, look, you guys as athletes are trained never give up until the clock says zero. But the likelihood of that play succeeding was, you know, very very low. And you guys pulled it yeah. off with a plum. So what are you thinking about in that moment? Well. I think right before that, you're thinking about, wow, we blew a 19-point lead. That's what we're thinking about, number one. Number two, after you do – the play does work and you win the game, you're really thinking about, wow, do we really have a chance to go to the Final Four? We have one more game. Can this be that much – that big of a huge – big of a dream that we're supposed to, pick, supposed to be picked last in the Big East, we win the Big East tournament, and now we're our number one seed, and now we have a chance to play Duke, the perennials that always go to the Final Four or always up there in the top five rankings every year. To, to go to the final four and we had our chance and uh we look forward to the opportunity and uh obviously like i said leitner hits a buzzer shot to to kill our dreams the next game yeah i think the obviously the duke kentucky game is the buzzer beater that everybody thinks about with christian leitner but this was you know one where uh he hits sort of a, a leaning 15 17 footer to win mm-hmm. 79 78 and, and i'll always remember my dad was a, a huge yukon fan having gone to yukon and graduated from there in the 70s and you know, I have a VHS copy still of the, the UConn-Clemson game that he taped off the television and showed me when I was a little <laughs> kid. But when he was describing to me the Duke game and why Duke had become, you know, sort of the, the arch nemesis, he always talked about the play right before the buzzer beater. And so I went back and oh. watched it, you know, today. And Bobby Hurley, um, you know, the, the brother of now UConn coach Dan Hurley, a famous Duke point guard, he throws a pass to the left wing and it tips off Tate George's hands and out of bounds, and mm-hmm. it, it almost looked like Tate tried to maybe run before he secured the ball because if he yeah. had caught that ball and dribbled it out, the game's over and you guys go to the Final Four. And you can see, you know, it sort of sets in a little bit because the ball tips off Tate's hand and he knows that Duke's going to have a chance now. And you can see he puts his hands on his face and, and Chris Smith comes over and kind of consoles him a little bit because he's mm-hmm. bent over. Yeah. So how do you sort of, uh, as an athlete, process that swing in emotions from something as simple as, catching a pass which Tate George did tens of thousands of times in his life to all of a sudden you know missing out on the final four yeah I mean just that's the way the ball bounces they say I guess um like you said if he secures that ball or even just tips it ball tips it down the sideline inbounds rolls yeah. down yeah inbounds we we go to the final four but rolls out of his office forums and goes out of bounds and we don't have that chance but I mean no, that's why every possession matters and every second counts. Can't take plays off mentally, physically. And I'm not saying Tate did, but just if, like I said, if that ball stays in bounds or Tate catches it, we're the first team to go to the Final Four in UConn history. And that's what you play. That's what you go to college for. That's what you, you dream of as a as an athlete growing up. And, uh, you know, things just – they had a great play in the next play, and they throw it back to Christian Leitner. And I think Sean McCafferty throws it back to Leitner, and Leitner hits a double, hits a double pump shot, and uh, they end up going to the Final Four again. But I just, I just think it's like they always show the Kentucky game, and in such disrespect that, you know, they put all those other schools as blue blood schools, and they don't respect UConn because that shot number right there was so much harder than the Kentucky shot. Yes, but uh, they just keep showing the Kentucky shot to be a bigger, bigger and better shot for some reason. I don't know. Well, we know why, but. Um, it, it's just it amazes me that they when they talk about great shots by Leitner or great shots in college basketball, how Leitner's shots not before that Kentucky one. You know that that wound up being the the deepest run that that you guys would make in your your UConn career there. But did you sense or could you sense by the end of your time in stores? a little bit of a turning of the tide when it came to maybe the appreciation for the program around the state or the, the caliber of recruit that, that Jim and his staff were able to get because by the time you walk out the door, you know, Danielle Marshall is walking in the door and by the time he walks out the door, Ray Allen is walking in the door. And so did you start to notice that domino effect or was it too soon to kind of pick up on that as a young player? No, you knew when the, my sophomore, my junior year when Danielle and Kevin and Donnie and um, – like eight guys came that year and the recruitment level obviously picked up. So you knew the tracks were laid down for better recruitment and great, a bigger future for you, for UConn. You know, I was looking at, you know, Danielle was sort of that next great one to pick up after, after you and Chris Smith. And I was looking who at the, so, who was so, who was so underrated and so not appreciated enough. It's amazing at well, UConn. That's where I was just going to go. I was looking at the numbers from his 93, 94 season. First of all, he was three and done in an era when guys, 
you know, didn't leave school too early. Obviously, Michael, you know, did, and, and other top players did, but it wasn't as prevalent as it is now. And in that 93-94 season, Danielle Marshall is a unanimous All-American with 25.1 points per game, 8.9 boards, 3.3 blocks. He's the Big East Player of the Year and the Big East Defensive Player of the Year. Now, you had a chance to play with him very young in his career. You also had a chance mm-hmm. to play briefly with him in Golden State. Um, mm-hmm. Just how good was he you know, at that time? It's disgusting how, uh, how, how much UConn doesn't appreciate the greatness that he brought to that school. Um, it, it's, it's, you know, they have their favorites obviously. And, but that man is, was awesome. And, and he had a great career in the NBA. People underestimate his career in the NBA. No doubt. Um, and he made three, what, 13 threes or 11 threes or 12 threes in one game in that NBA game. I mean, he had an unbelievable career, but people still underestimate how great he was and how much, how much, how talented he was in college and the great things he did for UConn. Did you, um, as your career progressed and, and you were starting to spend your summers playing baseball and things like that, that was sort of the, the tipping point where you would have had to choose between, you know, the, the NBA and, and Major League Baseball because I'm sure you knew it was pretty likely that you were going to get drafted and you ended up being a first-round pick. Did it ever cross your mind to, to maybe give baseball a chance after that second summer when you really started to improve as a pitcher and brought down your ERA by like 300%? Um, I, I don't, not really. Cause I mean, my ERA was high because number one, I was on a pitch limit. So I never yep. got a chance to, to be as good as I could be in baseball. So I, I just, I just love the competition of basketball. Um, baseball was fun. Baseball was fun, but the like I was never, like I said, I was never the best player and I love the challenge of trying to be great when I wasn't great. Um, and guarding guys that were great or playing against guys that were great that have done this all year, their lives. So I, I, that was the fun part about basketball. So when you break into the league in 93 and, and you're part of that Charlotte team that, that has a tremendous amount of talent on it, Muggsy Bogues at point guard, Larry Johnson, Alonzo Mourning, Del Curry, um, what was that adjustment like and, and what did you think of, of you know playing with guys that were you know, bona fide stars? I, I thought, I mean, was, I, I, think, I think, I thought, this is what I thought about it. If they let us grow and mature as a team, because we were all so young. I mean, everybody was one year above, uh, over, older, older than the next guy. If we matured as a team, we could have been really good. But each year when our contacts were up, they traded everybody. And uh, But like you said, we had some studs in that team, and, and it was fun. I mean, LJ, I mean, before he hurt his back, was a beast. Alonzo was a beast. Uh, Muggsy was an awesome point guard. If he just ran the court, he would give you two easy buckets, two easy points. I mean, it was fun playing with that team. Did you? Uh, this may be kind of a, an oddball question, but with Del Curry being on that team, did you get a chance to meet little five or six year old Steph? Was he running around at the time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny you said that. Yeah, they were they were in the locker room every day on the court working on their games. It's amazing that, and like I talked to Del about, it's amazing that when we were playing together, you never thought these guys would be the best players to ever play. One of the best players to ever play basketball. It's pretty. You know, it's it's pretty amazing. What what um what was his dad's game like? Oh, this is unbelievable shooter. One of the best shooters in NBA history. Um, silky smooth shot. Um, didn't play any D, but <laughs> <laughs> but but Del could, oh, one of the best shooters. Best his stroke was beautiful. Quick release. Yeah. Yes, fun to watch. A couple of years into your career in Charlotte there, you have that 94-95 season where I think you finished third or fourth in the voting for most improved player, and it ended up being your best offensive season, averaging about a dozen points a game. Um, you know, when your game was, was at its peak there and, you, and you, you didn't have to be just purely a role player, you were required to score a little bit, what worked well uh-huh. for you at the NBA level? Confidence. Confidence and opportunity. Um, they gave me opportunity. To, I started. Um, I got a lot of minutes. I felt uh, my my teammates had confidence in me, and, and I I just felt good, you know. But uh, it, it's all about confidence and, and being comfortable where you are. And I definitely was in Charlotte. Um, I just the thing that killed me was my injuries. I never right. stayed healthy, and I never was I never was able to build on what I worked on. I needed to get better in the summer because I was always rehabbing from injuries. About how early in your career did you think you wanted to go into coaching? I know your dad was a coach, and so you were around that type of environment all along. But when did you realize that that was something you might want to do however many years down the line? I knew. As soon as I was done playing, I knew I wanted to get involved in coaching. And I think my first opportunity, Joe Wolf, one of my old teammates, gave me an opportunity in the, in the, in the D-League at the time and the, for the Col- uh, Colorado 14ers, I think it was called. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So I was out in Colorado coaching with Joe Wolf and uh, – I loved it. I had fun. Um, and I was able to get an assistant coaching job at Quinnipiac. 
Yeah, there were two there were two pretty good future NBA guys on that team. PJ Tucker was on that team, Lou Amundsen was on that team. So you had some yeah. guys that ended up making it. What what was the D League like at that time? It was basically in its infancy, but did from a coaching perspective, what did you learn or glean from that first ever experience as a coach? I, I just know that guys like cuz I I I had the chance to play in the NBA, but there's hungry guys out there everywhere that that deserve a shot. And like you said, Lou and, and PJ had the chance to, to, to play in that league, and they made it. And uh, so any, no matter where you are, people are going to find you if you put it, put the work in and you want to be great. And then, you know, after that first season in the D-League, you have an opportunity to move up as an assistant in Division One. And I know you've been asked this question before, but the opportunity to go back and coach in your hometown uh, of Hamden, Connecticut for Quinnipiac, uh, I, mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't know if you had other offers at the time, but was that a situation where it was just too good to pass up to come home and and sort of you know give back to your own community a little bit? Yeah, it was. I mean, I like I'll be honest. No, I didn't have a lot of offers, and I still don't. <laughs> but but it's it, it's it's fun. It was fun to get back and coach in my hometown, um, and, and it's a beautiful school, beautiful campus, and I I love being able to coach in my hometown and start my college coaching career there. Did you were you the type of person that would start you know calling the the Howie Dickmans or the Dave Latos or the assistant coaches you played for in the NBA or Jim in order to start to put together you know the Scott Burrell coaching manual if you will? No, I, not really. Um, I, I well, I would, I would reach I reach out to him for some advice about coaching because um, obviously you never stop you never want to stop learning um, if you don't get better at coaching or playing or. Or, or learning as an athlete, you're not doing yourself a, 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 the best. You're doing yourself an injustice, and I don't not want to do that. So I reached out to all those guys about coaching, and they definitely helped me. But I never thought about the coaching tree really. I never, you never, because you just play you because you, you were playing for so long. You never thought about the coaching tree. So when you had the opportunity to become a head coach for the first time at Southern Connecticut State University in 2015, um, you know, I don't know if, if people talk to you about it at all or if any of your old teammates watch your team at all, but uh, do guys notice things that you that they would say, oh, this is reminiscent of, of a drill that we used to do with Coach Calhoun or, oh, you know, this looks like something Phil used to have us do in Chicago or, you know, whoever you, co- you played for. Did, did you grasp things from them over the years? I mean, you had to, right? Oh, definitely, definitely. I, I would definitely take. That's why I keep going to practice other practices now to try to um, get better and and make things fun. But at the same time, something that's productive. Um, I, I just I, I love going to watch Michigan State practice or Michigan practice or or going to Golden State, uh, going to the, the watch the Nets practice. It, like I said, you got to grow as a as a coach and, and 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 make things fun for young kids. But at the same time, make it productive that they're getting better at something, a skill. You know, for for your program at Southern to go to the NCAA tournament in your first two seasons there, um, what did that mean to you, you know, for a school that at the Division II level, you know, had certainly had some success, but, you know, I saw a stat that said over your first four years there, you had more wins in that initial introductory period than than any coach in school history. So to go to back-to-back tournaments and to put together the type of winning seasons that you had, what has it meant to you to, to have early success as a head coach? Number one, I thank the previous staff. <laughs> I'll be honest, I mean, it's not all about me, but I also thank um, the guys that that played for me. Um, they they went out and competed, and and they bought into what I was selling. Uh, and 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 we would have more wins if injuries didn't hurt us. I mean, we have we've had a lot of injuries that hurt our team, and and that's held us down a little bit. But things good things are going to come when we stay healthy. We're going to we're going to get we're going to reach our goal and our dreams and and make it to the NCAA tournament again and and maybe win a national championship. How much uh or how many questions do you get, I should say, from recruits and and parents and young players about, you know, playing with Michael or playing in the NBA? I saw a great quote from you that said, "Your championship ring stays protected unless you have to wear it to games or events or recruiting." And I imagine that that's yeah. a a pretty nice piece to have on your hand when you're going to recruit a guy. Yeah, but you know what's funny? Kids don't know because all the kids know about is LeBron or KD or Kobe, but they don't know about MJ. They don't know about history. So well, I don't, they, they do now. Parents, <laughs> they do now. Yeah, they do now. But their parents know more. So it's great to talk to the parents about the history and, and what I've done, and and hopefully the parents can can explain to the kids what the NBA was like back then, and, and hopefully the kids do their research, watch YouTube, and and appreciate it more. But I mean, I. I 
I, I don't really talk about that much, just about the ring. That's the only time I, I talk about it. They'll say, what's that ring for? Or can I see the ring? Then I'll explain a little bit to them. But they all think, they all think LeBron's better than MJ. Well, I think I think they're all wrong. Um, but you know, yeah, yeah. I, I saw yeah. a great couple of articles talking about how you were sort of, and you mentioned it earlier, explaining to your family what to expect on the documentary and things like that. But how about the the guys on your team, the players that you have? Were they, you know, furiously texting you every Sunday, like, "Oh my gosh, oh my gosh," watching that thing unfold? No, I haven't talked. I don't. I don't tell my guys about my my my, my basketball life. If they ask me questions, I'll I'll talk to them about it. But I don't want to push anything on them. Sure. So only only a couple of guys have reached out to me and talked about it, but uh, a lot of guys haven't. And and if because I don't know if a lot of guys see it. I think if it's not not it doesn't have anything to do with Kobe or LeBron, they won't watch it. And that's the way they are nowadays. Um, but a few guys have, and and they're like, he was unbelievable. I mean, he was the most competitive person they've ever seen, and it was fun for them to watch it to see why Michael was the way he was. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, to get you out of here, I got a couple quick fun questions that I think will be yep. uh, some some interesting ones here at the end. Uh, I think I already know a little bit of the answer to the first one, but if you had to build your UConn basketball Mount Rushmore for the men, who goes on there, the four guys? Um, Danielle Marshall, Cliff Robinson, Ray Allen, and uh, I got to pick one of the old-timers. Uh, I would say maybe Wes Belisuknia. I didn't really okay. see those guys play, but I got to give some. Nobody gives old timers credit, and they have to been great without the three point line back in the day. So I would give one of the old timers uh, a lot of credit. People leave out Danielle, and people leave out Cliff Robinson all okay. the time. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, um, what is your uh, what is your favorite you know PG PG thirteen Jim Calhoun moment that you can share from the, for this podcast? There's never been a PG thirteen. Uh, uh, incident with Coach Calhoun. <laughs> it's been all rated R. No, no, PG thirteen. I, I don't. I don't know if I have a PG thirteen story though. To be honest, I just Fair I enough. love playing for him. I love playing for him. Like people thought MJ was hard in the in the documentary. Coach Calhoun prepared us what much for all that, and um, he pushed us to be the greatest, the best players we could be. So whatever MJ did on the court back then, it was that's why it never phased me at all. What was it like to see UConn win its first title in 99 with Richard Hamilton and Khalid El-Amin, knowing that you guys had played a role in the foundation of that? You love it. You love to see your, your, the school you went to, the help you helped build to what it is today, and then the foundations were, were a, long, a long time ago, but the bricks are still there, and you love to see them be successful. And they finally reached the pinnacle of greatness that you watch Duke and Kansas and Kentucky do so many times, but now UConn is up there winning their first national championship back then. It was awesome. And then two quick ones about the Bulls to finish up here. What do you remember most about sort of the, the week or two following the championship? Was there any moment of the celebration oh. or the parades <laughs> or anything that you can still remember? The the partying, the, 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 the intense uh, stress is relieved. Um, you're the best team in the world. Um, you stood uh, on a stage at Grant Park where millions of uh, million people watched and, and were celebrated with you and, and enjoyed it. I, I just loved every bit of that. Um, the next two weeks, it was fun. It was a team oriented. We had a dinner after that and celebrate with each other, with wives and families. It was it was awesome. And then the last one, you know, I saw a, a pretty cool quote from you in one of the interviews you gave in the last couple of weeks saying that, you know, uh, something to the effect of, you know that Michael likes you and you like Michael and that there's a good relationship there even, you know, uh, underneath the competitive nature of it. So, you know, if, if you went out to a restaurant tomorrow and, and Michael was there, what would it be like to, to catch up with him all these years later? We would laugh. The first thing he says, here he goes, always laughing cause all, or smiling because I, I always smile. No matter if I'm nervous or I'm, I'm stressed or I'm, I'm happy, I'm always going to smile because that's the way I am. But, uh, and that's the first thing he's going to say. But uh, he better buy me a drink or dinner. I mean, geez, <laughs> I, I mean, he might, might not. But that's how tough he is. But uh, would have, no matter what, we would have some drinks and have a great time because and talk, tell, tell stories and and then go play golf so I can kick his butt the next day. Oh man, can you, can you beat him <laughs> in golf? I will. I, I just had hip surgery about three weeks ago. So after I get recovered from my hip re, hip replacement, I'll definitely hip, hip um, I had my hip resurfaced. So in about three weeks, I'll be able to play another month. I'll be able to play again, and I'm going down to Florida to play him. So 
I'll kick his butt. Wow, wow, well, that is impressive. <laughs> that is impressive. Yeah. Just uh, stay away Thank from you. the gambling if you can. So <laughs> no, no. I, I look. I set the tables real low early, and I'm not bumping it up because I know he's gonna try to bump it up, and all pipes bust when it gets a little extra stress to put on. So I'm not raising that price price tag up. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, Scott, thank you so much for being generous with your time. I had a great time uh, picking your brain a little bit here. This was a lot of fun for me. So thanks again for for taking the time. I truly appreciate it. No problem. It It was awesome. I, I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. It was a lot of fun. So there you have it, a conversation with Scott Burrell. That was a lot of fun. I really loved hearing his stories about the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan and just kind of you know, dipping our toes into that world a little bit because it's it's a universe that only a finite group of people got to experience being around and playing with Michael Jordan and, and Scott was obviously one of those people. I, I loved his little confidence there at the end saying not only is he looking forward to going to Florida to play golf with Michael, but that he's going to kick his butt. So later this year, I'll have to ask Scott how those golf games went and see if he followed through on that promise. I want to thank everybody for listening to today's show. As always, you can find episodes of this program available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and just about anywhere else you listen to shows. As usual, if you're listening on an Apple device, I encourage you to leave us a star rating, preferably five stars if you like the show, and maybe a comment if you have something to share. I do check out all of those things that you guys submit. Don't forget our sponsor, Manscaped. You can get 20% off your order plus free shipping at manscaped.com using the promo code COHEN, C-O-H-E-N. That's 20% off your order plus free shipping at manscaped.com using the promo code COHEN, C-O-H-E-N. So until the next episode of this podcast, I hope you guys have a terrific rest of your day, a terrific rest of your week, and I will talk to you again soon. 